The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. To the book of First Peter. Now, First Peter is going to be towards the end of the Bible. Okay? And if you flip too fast, you're probably going to miss it. Okay? So, flip to the book of First Peter. It's after James... Okay, it's, it's like you're going to flip, 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 you're going to hit Revelation and then back up a couple of books, okay? So you want to look, First Peter. Now we are beginning a new sermon series here. Now I know what you're going to say, this seems a little ADD, Andrew, we didn't finish with Matthew. And you're absolutely right, we haven't finished with Matthew. We will go back to Matthew, okay? We're going to go back to Matthew probably at the beginning of next year, okay? So we're going to take a little break from Matthew. And then we're going to drop back into Matthew, and hopefully, if everything works out, we're going to finish Matthew at Easter in this big, like, culminating thing, if I've done it right, which I probably haven't, but whatever. We'll see how it goes. In the meantime, though, we're going to be going through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter's a weird book. We're not used to 1 Peter. We're used to reading through Paul's stuff. We're used to reading through the Gospels. There's going to be some odd stuff in 1 Peter. And we're going to have to pick it apart. We're going to have to look at it. It's going to be a little bit strange. And it's going to be kind of strange like reading a letter to somebody else. If you've ever run across that or had that happen, if you ever opened a letter that doesn't belong to you, like inadvertently you get all the mail in and you open one up and you start, you're like, wow, whoa, wait a second. This is awkward. This isn't, this isn't actually to me. This is to somebody else. And then you're faced with this, this kind of awkward, like, do I keep looking? Is it like a, like a, like a car wreck? Like, I, I, don't, I know I shouldn't look, but I kind of want to look. But I'm going to go ahead and look. And I gotta, I'll just finish the letter that I'm reading, right? It's like I, I have, the, those of you that know uh, about uh, Shannon and, and my email struggles, um, for whatever reason, through some cosmic twist of weirdness, uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs uh, speaking from beyond the grave. I have access to all my wife's text messages, right? So her text messages show up on my phone, which is kind of cool, but also a little weird sometimes. Like, I'll, like it'll come up on my phone. I'll be like, that's not for me. In fact, that's about me. That's mostly to her mother about me, Right? Um, and and you're, you're eavesdropping on somebody else's conversation. And sometimes when we read these books of the Bible, sometimes when we read some of these letters, it kind of feels that way. But I want you to realize that while the book of 1 Peter was a letter that was written a long time ago to a completely different group of people in a different place at a different time, it is still applicable to us. See, 1 Peter is, a, is an ancient letter. But it has a timeless message. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an ancient letter with a timeless message. And it's a message that is very applicable to us where we are today. And so we're going to dive into this. And we're going to spend today looking at kind of the context of the letter. We're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to look at who was writing it, where they were writing it, who they were writing it to. Because that kind of helps us understand what the guy's actually talking about. And so we're going to start off in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to take the first 
phrase there, just the first couple of words. Right? It starts off, Peter, before we do that, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. I forgot to pray, and that's never a good thing. So hold on just a second. Hold, wait, put your finger on 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and then we're going to pray. Dear Lord, God, I ask that the words of my preaching would not be men's wisdom, but that would be truth spoken by you to your people. God, I ask that you would bind me to you in such a way that I can only speak those things that you have me to speak. God, I ask that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit, that you would open and empower the hearts of my listeners, that the things that we talk about in here would be glorifying to you, that they would draw each of us closer into relationship with you, and that they would send us out in mission to do your will. <coughs> and Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to stop there. We're going to pick this apart. Okay? Peter was the person that wrote this letter. We haven't had a letter written by Peter before. We haven't really looked at the things that he's written. We've seen Peter a lot. We've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew. We get to see Peter, and he's kind of a goofball, right? I mean, we see Peter as he makes mistakes and as he, as he does things that are maybe not that cool. But we need to look at who Peter was. So Peter was a man chosen by Jesus, called into service to him. We have this image from the Gospel of Matthew with Jesus on the shore calling out to the guys that are on the boat. He tells them to lower their nets down, right? Uh, and and, and uh, I'm sorry, Jesus goes out with him. He calls him. They come and pick him up. He goes out in the water. He says, let your, your nets down on this side of the boat. They're like, Jesus, we've been out here fishing all day, right? We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, well, let your, boat, let your, let your nets down anyway. Just put them down here. He's like, okay, we'll let them down. And they pull up a, a load of fish that is too much for them to be able to carry. And, and Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and says, leave me, Lord, for I, I am a... I'm a bad man. Don't, don't be near me, Jesus. And, and, and this, this kind of uh, broken relationship with Christ will echo throughout the gospel as Jesus is drawn, or Peter is drawn to Jesus, but then is very aware of all of his failings. And as, Jesus, as Peter grows in his role as a leader of the disciples, you, we're going to see him do amazing things, right? Peter is the one who steps out on the water to walk to Jesus. But he's also the one that looks down and doubts and sinks. Right? right? Peter is the, is the one who will proclaim, you are the Son of God for the first time. But he's also the one that will rebuke Jesus for wanting to go to Jerusalem. Christ will call him the rock. Peter, you are the rock. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But he will also say, get behind me, Satan. For you have nothing to do with my ministry. This is the same Peter who will pull out a sword when Jesus gets arrested. Right? Jesus is going to get arrested Peter's going to pull out a sword and cut the ear 
off the servant of the high priest. But he's also the disciple who will deny Christ three times in the courtyard of the palace. Right? This is who Peter is. He is a man, much like David, right? We look at David. David is a man after God's own heart. Not because he's a great guy. Peter, David's actually a pretty bad guy, right? David's a murderer. He, he goes and, and kills people. He lies. He, he cheats. He's angry. But he is a man that runs after God's heart. He's a man who is flawed, but is also used by God to do amazing things in God's service. And Peter is the same way. Peter goons it up and makes mistakes and gets stuff wrong and yet christ has called him to be a leader of the disciples called him into service and peter is going to be the one that's going to write this letter peter is this intensely human character who boasts about his ability to stay with christ and then runs away from him he fails christ and is renewed by Christ and is sent out on mission for Christ with this call to go and feed Christ's sheep. He denies Christ before the crucifixion and will ultimately be crucified for Christ. Despite all of these failings, despite all of these, these shortcomings, Peter is an apostle. He is one who is called by God and sent out on mission for Christ to spread the word of who Jesus is, to speak authoritatively to a dark world and share the truth. He's a man chosen by Christ despite his faults, who is redeemed by Christ despite the fact that he betrayed him. And it is this reality that's going to shape the way that Peter is going to minister. See, Peter is someone who speaks with authority, but this authority comes from God. It comes through him in the words that he speaks and in the things that are written down. And we get to see this authority and we get to see this teaching in the book of 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter is an ancient book that is written by an apostle. And so this ancient book has authority in it. Peter writes this book at the end of his life. We, we try to piece together when exactly Peter wrote this. We're not sure. We can take some context clues from it that he was writing the book from Rome, which means that it probably had to be before 65 AD when he was killed, crucified upside down on a cross. And sometime before 62 AD. So it's, it's kind of in this crease. In the middle of this period of increasing persecution. One of the larger or one of the first periods of Roman persecution. What you got to understand is that this book is going to be immersed in this concept of conflict and strife. Of problems as Christians begin to have pressure applied to them by the Roman authorities. Up to this point, persecution has been mainly a fraternal deal, right? It's mostly between the Jews and the Christians. Up to this point, the Romans didn't really have much to do with the Christians. All of the persecution that came down was by the Jewish ruling government that was trying to stamp Christianity out in its cradle. This is the, the period where the Jews will 
kill Stephen and James, where they're going to murder Saul before he converted and became an apostle, where Saul's going to murder people before he becomes an apostle. Uh, the Christians are going to be expelled from the synagogues. They're going to be expelled from their families. They're going to be driven from their jobs. They're going to lose their possessions. They're going to be systematically driven from Jewish society. Now, this is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because nobody likes to be persecuted. Persecution, as a rule, is tough. Everybody likes to be liked. I want to be liked by people. I don't like it when people are mad at me. Okay, I, mean, I was that kid in high school, junior high, who'd get into fights, right? But when I got into fights, I'd cry, right? I'm beating some dude up, but I'm crying. I got tears rolling down because I don't like it that he doesn't like me. I mean, I got him in a headlock and I'm choking him out, but I'm mad because he doesn't like me. Like, like me. You need to like me. I want to be liked. We all want to be liked. So it's hard to be persecuted, especially by your family, especially by people that you love, by people that you've been grown up, that you've grown up with. And this is the nature of the persecution. The Romans are pretty much going to ignore it. The, the Romans had this kind of weird relationship with the Jews. They viewed the Jews kind of like the way we view Muslims today. They're weird. They believe strange things. And as long as they leave us alone, we don't really want much to do with them. That's the way that the Romans saw the Jews. They saw them as a weird group of people that believed strange things and were fairly antisocial. Now, now the Romans were, a, by and large, a pretty tolerant group of people, right? They were okay with you believing pretty much whatever you wanted to believe. They didn't really care. You want to paint yourself green and go worship trees? Rock on. Go be a druid, okay? You want to do that? You want to worship bull, bulls or ISIS or fertility gods, we don't care. So long as you also worship the Roman national gods, right? We're okay with you believe in whatever you want to believe so long as you worship the Roman national gods. In fact, if your gods are cool enough, we're going to go ahead and co-opt them, right? That's how Zeus and Jupiter are really the same god, right? The Roman gods and the Greek gods are really the same gods because when the Romans conquered the Greeks, they came in there and said, we like your gods. They seem cool. We're going to go ahead and co-opt them. We're going to change their names and we're going to make them Roman gods. And there's this whole, this whole mythology about how the Romans really came from the Trojans and there's all this weird stuff. The point is that the Romans had no problem with you worshiping whoever you wanted to worship so long as you also worshiped their god. What they didn't like was people who were exclusionary. They didn't like it when you didn't affirm their gods. They looked at that as atheism. If you said that there were that Zeus and Apollo and Hera and Juno and Neptune and all these other gods, if you said that they didn't exist or they weren't real gods, then you were an atheist. You were antisocial. You didn't want to be part of the club. But it was also more insidious, too, because the Romans used their religion as a way to bind their empire together and as a way to control their subject peoples. And so from about the time of uh, 40 BC onward, you saw this cult of the emperor. As the emperor began to picture himself as a god, especially in the east. And so Julius Caesar has himself deified, 
right? Augustus has himself deified. And so in, along the, the, the eastern Mediterranean and in Egypt and in, in, <clears throat> in Syria and in Turkey, there was this systematic worship of the emperor. Now, that wasn't necessarily because the emperor thought he was a god. It was because he wanted his people to think that he was a god so that he could control them. And so if you were a person and you wanted to worship a fertility cult and you didn't want to worship the emperor, they said, aha, you must be a rebel. There must be something wrong with you. you there, maybe you don't like the Romans. Maybe you don't want to pay taxes. Maybe we need to do something about you. Now, the Jews had a special deal. Because the Romans, while they hated people that were religiously exclusive, they loved people that believed in old religions. The Romans loved everything old, everything ancient, everything mysterious and shrouded in mystery. And so the Jews had an unarguably ancient religion. Their religion was 2,000 years old before the Romans conquered them. And so they got a dispensation. They didn't have to worship the Roman gods. They got a special deal. They didn't have to do these things. They had to render obedience and promise to pray for the emperor. But that's it. And so the Romans are looking at the things that are happening between the Jews and the Christian as two groups of crazy people being crazy by themselves. And as long as their craziness didn't affect the Roman Empire, they were okay with it. But when that insanity begins to infect the people around them, when that insanity bleeds over into riots, then it becomes a problem. And so we begin to see around 49 AD, we begin to see that the Romans are now taking an interest in the things that are happening between the Jews and the Christians. By 49 or 50 AD, Christians had kind of permeated the area. More and more Gentiles are becoming Christians. And the Christians... And the Jewish Christians are beginning to identify themselves differently. And so around 50 AD, the emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews and all of the Christians out of Rome. Right? He kicks all the Jews, all the Jewish Christians out of Rome. We see that in the book of Acts. And there is this, this idea that these people are rioting. They're being disruptive. And we, we just want them out. We don't want them to be around us. They're crazy. Leave them alone. Well, as this happens... Now the Romans begin to see that the Christians are different from the Jews. They're not part of an ancient religion. They're kind of a cult, a weird group of people. And so they start paying more attention to them and saying, well, what is, it that you guys, what is it that you guys actually do and actually believe? Well, and I don't want you to imagine what this sounds like to a, to a, to a, a, a respectable Roman. We get this impression when we watch TV shows about the Romans that they're all like, that they're like crazy libertines and all they want to do is have orgies all the time. That's not who the Romans are. That's who Hollywood wants the Romans to be because that way you can sell TV shows on HBO. The Romans were incredibly conservative people. Really, really conservative people. They, they believed in family. They believed in the solidity of the state. In fact, at the time that this is being written, the emperor is penalizing young men for not getting married. Right? So it's a very conservative state. And so a person from a very conservative state says, Hey, Christian, what do you believe in? Well, we get together um, in the evenings in closed rooms and have love feasts. 
You have a, a love, a love feast? Yeah, we have a love feast. Okay. What do you do at a, at a love feast? Well, we consume the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior. Right. So you get together in a dark room and have a love feast where you consume human flesh? Well, well, yeah. Okay. Oh, and we're married to our sisters. That's, that's really creepy. That's some creepy, creepy stuff. You're married to, yeah, it's my sister in Christ. We're, I'm her brother in Christ. She's my sister in Christ. We got married. It's like, so you're marrying your sisters. You're consuming human flesh and you're having love feasts in the dark. Like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with you guys. You guys are nuts. Right? That sounds silly because we know that a love feast is the Eucharist. And we know that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ because we have one father who's God. And we know that when we consume the body and blood of Christ, we're not eating human flesh. We're not cannibals. Right? But if you're a Roman, that's what you think is happening. And so Christians get called uh, incestuous cannibals who meet in the dark, in the catacombs. Right? They're bad people. They're immoral people. You start reading the, the Roman writings around this time, and, and, and they have a uniformly bad view of who the Christians are. Well, when you have a group of people that everybody hates... They're really easy to take advantage of. So now you get a crazy Roman emperor. So you have a, a, a hated minority who does things that you don't understand, and you have a crazy emperor, Emperor Nero. And Emperor Nero's nuts. I mean, he's straight up crazy. But he also has a problem. See, he wants nothing more than to build a large golden house for himself. I mean, that's reasonable. Build a big multi-acre golden house for yourself. You're the emperor. You should have it. Unfortunately, there's all these houses around you that keep you from being able to build the golden house you've always wanted. So what you do is you light everything on fire. You light the city of Rome on fire. And that way, it's called urban renewal. All the poor people have to leave because their houses have burned down. Unfortunately, rich people's houses burn down too. So you have to figure out somebody to blame this fire on. So Nero goes, aha! We'll blame it on the Christians because they're terrible, incestuous people who have love fests in the middle of the night and consume human flesh. They're probably bad anyway. And so he blames it on the Christians and the Christians become persecuted, right? And they start to take the Christians and they feed them to wild animals, right? Nero, who is again crazy, decides, you know what? I'm building my new golden house. I want to have a garden party. What's the best way to have a garden party? You have to have lights. Well, what's the best way to, what's the thing that's going to make the best light? I know, we'll take the Christians, we'll dip them in oil, light them on fire, and use them to light our garden parties. Okay? That's who we're dealing with. That's what's happening as Paul, or sorry, as Peter is writing the story. Right? He is writing this ancient letter in the midst of persecution and chaos as a crazy emperor is dissolving his nation around him as people are choosing sides and, and, and informants are informing on each other and, and they're meeting in secret. This ancient letter is written by a messenger from God to his people in the midst of turmoil and persecution and crisis. So who's he writing it to? The letter is written to those who are elect aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect aliens. 
Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Bithynia. What, what are these places? What is he talking about? This is weird. This is not a science fiction movie. Okay? He's not writing to aliens. The idea here is that he is writing to a group of people who are strangers in a strange land. And what is this strange land? Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are all provinces along the coast of the Black Sea in the northern part of Turkey. These are places that Paul went through on his missionary journey. It's actually a very large area, but it's also a backwater. Like, this is not some place that you go to to get anywhere. Like, there's nothing on the other end of this road. Like, if you trace it out, when you land at the Black Sea, you end up, the first place you go is Pontus. You land at Pontus, you go to Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and that's pretty much the end of the road. There's nothing there, right? It's like, it's like going to Tavner, right? You, like, dead end in Tavner, and where are you? Well, I'm in Tavner. It's nowhere. He's talking to a group of unimportant people in an un- unimportant place. He's talking to Nowhereville. Rome. But these people living in nowhere Rome are about to be engulfed in a persecution that will be perpetrated by the Romans. See, after Nero's persecution, the Roman Empire decided that the Christians probably needed to be dealt with. And so you have wave after wave of persecution that's going to run across the Roman world. And and these persecutions are going to be far worse than Nero's. Not because Nero wasn't crazy and they weren't bad, but because they're going to be more pervasive. The persecution is going to be more insidious. Domitian and Trajan are going to execute cold, calculated pressure against Christian groups. Here's the way that it works. Here's the way that it worked in Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia. And we know this because we have a letter from the, the governor there. He wrote a letter to, to, to the emperor telling him about how he's persecuting Christians. This is how it works. One morning you wake up and there's a letter on the wall and somebody has informed on all the Christians and said, here's the name of all the Christians in town. So what they do is they call each of those people in and they say, Hey, I hear you're a Christian. Kim, there's a le- your name's on the letter on the wall. Want to know that? Uh, Want to know if you're actually a Christian? And uh, and if you say no, you're like, oh uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Christian. Those people are crazy. They eat human flesh, and that's bad. I don't do that. They're like, okay, that's cool. Well, all, all we want you to do is to curse the name of Jesus and sprinkle some incense on this altar. And if you do that, you get to go home. If you can't do that, then uh, we're going to seize all your property and we're going to kill you. So on the one hand, you sprinkle a little incense on the altar and curse the name of Jesus. On the other hand, we're going to feed you to wild dogs. So you go ahead and decide. We're going to put you in pr- If you say, no, I can't do this, we're going to put you in prison for a couple months and let you think about it. Then we're going to send your kids in. And your kids will be like, mommy, mommy. I don't want you to die. You'd be like, but I, I can't curse the name of Jesus. Oh, please just say, just say it. Right? Just say it. Just sprinkle a little incense and you're done. And the idea is they don't necessarily want to control what you believe, but they want you to submit. 
Because they know that if they can just, if they can just make you submit, then, then they've got you. Then, then, you've, then you're not really a follower of Christ. And so this pervasive persecution ends up eating away at the church as, as husbands and wives turn on each other, as families begin to turn each other in. It, it becomes almost a witch hunt as they try to find the Christians. As Christians are turned out of their jobs and are forced to run away from the city. See, Peter understood the pressure that comes on a person when they're called to deny Christ. He knew the pressure because Peter had denied Christ. Like Peter's not, he's not saying the things that he's saying in the book of 1 Peter because he's coldly disinterested, right? This isn't, this isn't a theory for him. This isn't something that he doesn't know anything about. Peter has stood in the courtyard of people that were actively beating Jesus and denied Christ. He knows what the pressure looks like. But see, Peter also knows the gut-wrenching loss that comes from selling out your Lord. That loss will control him and drive him. Right? Peter this man who, who gave up Christ in the midst of crisis after bragging that he would be strong. This same Peter is restored by Christ. This same Peter is going to preach the Pentecost sermon. Right? That's going to see thousands of people converted. This same Peter will stand before the Sanhedrin and say, I don't care what you do to me. You do whatever you want to to me but I'm not going to deny Christ again. This same Peter will walk away from the post where he has been flogged, praising God. He'll go to prison for Christ and share his faith with the jailer. This same Peter will look the Romans in the eye and say, you want to crucify me? Awesome. Do it upside down. Because I don't rate regular crucifixion. That's who Peter had become. And so he's speaking to these people in this area, and he's saying, I know what's going to come down. I know how this is going to happen to you. I know what this is going to feel like and what this is going to look like, and you need to hold on. You need to stand firm. And here's how you do it. See, right, he's writing an ancient letter to a group of people in an ancient place, and he's about to give them timeless truth. Truth that is going to give them the ability to stand in the midst of turmoil. And so he says, he calls them elect aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. He's telling them who they are. He's saying, you're about to be persecuted. Persecution sucks. But here's how you stand firm. You know who you are. You don't believe the lies the world tells you. You know who you are. And you know who you are? You are the elect of God. You're not, you're not here as an accident of chance. You were chosen before the beginning of the world. God knew your name before you were born. You were chosen. You are an elect 
alien scattered among these many, many places. You're sojourners. People who are living among a people whom they do not belong in the diaspora. And the diaspora is this idea that comes out of Jewish culture as the, as the Jews were, were exiled from the, from the land that they had been given by God. They spread out into the world. And you had these little pockets of Judaism in every major city spread out all over through the ancient world. And these people would cling together. They would, they would, they would come together. And they, they would notice each other. And wherever you were, if you were a Jew, you would find another Jew and you would get together and share the Sabbath. You, you would come together to share the Passover together. That was the diaspora, right? And Paul or Peter is writing to his people and saying, that's who you are. You don't belong to this world. They don't own you. you don't, you're not part of that nation. You're part of something different. And you were chosen for it. So get your head up. Bind yourself together with other people like you and resist. Right? Because you weren't chosen before the beginning of the world for no reason. You were chosen before the beginning of the world. You were sprinkled with the blood of Christ and made holy to go into the presence of God so that you could be holy in the world. So that you could reflect the glory of the immortal God to a world that has become darkened and forgot who its master is. They've been sanctified by the sprinkling of the blood. The, the image here is, is of the high priest, right? Who, as he's about to go into the Holy of Holies, right? The place where if you go in and you're not sanctified, you die. Right? People who go into the Holy of Holies without being pure die. People who enter the temple without being purified get leprosy. Like it's a bad thing. You touch the Ark of the Covenant without preparing yourself and you die. That's the God we serve, right? We believe that the Bible is true. That's what God says about himself. You come into my presence and you are not holy, I will kill you. Like I will straight up kill you. And so the high priest, before he would go into the Holy of Holies, would kill a sacrificial animal, this, this animal that, that was supposed to take away his sins, right? His blood pays for sin. And he would take the blood and he would put it on his earlobes and on his nose and on his chin and on his forehead. It's some gross stuff. Like this gory, nasty scene, this idea that blood covers sin. And so what is Peter telling? He's telling his people, you have been bought by the blood of Christ. That's who you are. That's what you're supposed to do. God chose them and he changed them and he made them new. They have been sanctified so that they can go into the world and be obedient to Christ. That is what is supposed to hold them in the midst of the crisis that they're about to enter. And as we go through and study this book, this book is going to be all about that. It's going to be about who you are in Christ, what the world is going to do to you, and how you are supposed to endure. 
See, Peter, 1 Peter is an ancient letter filled with timeless truth, and it is just as important today as it was back then. As Christians, we are people chosen by God based on the foreknowledge of Him. We have been made holy by the power of God. We have been anointed with the blood of His Son so that we can live in His presence and reflect His glory to a sinful world. That's what a Christian is. It's not somebody that goes to church on Sunday. It's not somebody that wears nice clothes. It's not somebody that votes Republican. It's somebody who has been bought by the blood of Christ and changed into somebody different. So that they can reflect the glory of God to a dark world. I know sometimes it feels like the world has, has gone crazy, right? Like it doesn't make sense. Like you don't belong here. Brothers and sisters, that's because you don't belong here. You are a stranger in a strange world. This is not your home. You feel homesick for a different land. And that's okay. This land shouldn't feel like home to you. Its ethics and its values and its morals are completely different from who you are. And if you are living as you are supposed to be living as a Christian, you will come into conflict almost daily with the world you live in. That's just how it works, guys. Persecution is not an accident, right? It's not something that, that accidentally happens. It's something that happens when we act the way that we're supposed to act. See, we live in a world that's pluralistic, right? We live in a world that teaches us that there's multiple different kinds of truth, right? And that that truth can be different depending on who you are. I, I teach class, right? I teach high school classes, teach philosophy to high school students. And every single one of them says, well, you know, the truth according to me. And I'm like, I don't want to know what the truth according to you is. You're not God. I want to know what the truth is. Because your truth means nothing to me. I don't know what you mean about it. But you can say that I, I believe in the flying spaghetti monster. That's great. It's not true. But you can say you believe in it. No, what, we, what we're interested in is actual truth. As Christians, we believe that there is actual truth, that, you, that there is reality, that there is beauty and truth and goodness. And we believe that those things are wrapped up in God. Right? That it's not multiple truths. It's not multiple gods. It's not multiple realities. There's one God, one truth, one beauty, and that's what we worship. That's why the world hates us. We... We don't agree because we won't agree. We believe totally different things. Right? But we, we believe in a moral God, right? We believe in a God who, who created us and cares about the way that we act. He's a holy God. He has righteousness. There are certain things that are good to do and certain things that aren't good to do. And if you do the things that you're not supposed to do, God gets angry. Right? He's, he's, not, he's not a hippie God who's like, hey, whatever, bro, whatever. We're just going to sit down here and smoke some peyote in our sweat lodge. It'll be okay. That's not who God is. God cares about your behavior. We live in an immoral world that says that believing that is bad. Right? Have you, have you caught that? 
that believing in morality makes you a bad person in the eyes of the world? Right? They think of us, the world sees us as bigots, as hate mongers, as angry people. They look at us as the problem in society that needs to be cut out. We believe in a supernatural God. Like God exists outside of nature, that he created nature, that he is not defined by nature. We live in a world that says that the only things that you can see, the only things that you can see are real. The only things that you can test are true. That human knowledge and intellect are the limit of truth. So brothers and sisters, we will be per- pre- we will be persecuted. We will be victimized. We will be ostracized. Because from the world's perspective, we're not part of the solution to the problem. We are the problem. We are the reason that there is anger and hatred in society. We are the reason that bad things happen. We will be persecuted and we will be ostracized. The real question is how we will respond to that persecution. Because brothers and sisters, it is coming. I don't care who you vote for in November. At some point, it's coming. This church will lose its tax-exempt status. It's going to happen. You may lose your job for believing what you believe. I may be put in jail for preaching what I preach. The question is not whether or not that's going to happen. The question is, how do you respond to it? There's three ways you can respond to it. You can give in. And brothers, it's so easy to give in. It's so easy to give. You can believe whatever you want to. They say, just, just believe in this too. You want, you, want to believe in, you want to be crazy and believe in Jesus? Believe in Jesus. But, but just don't live like you do. Just, you know, let people be people. Let, let everything be okay. Sprinkle a little bit of incense on the altar. That's all we ask. It's so easy. It's so easy to just give in and everything becomes okay then. All the pressure is off. Make that cake for that wedding. Do those flowers for that wedding. Take back that mean, hateful thing you said. Just take it back. You can grow hard and angry. You'd be like, nobody's going to oppress me. I love Jesus. I'm going to shoot you. Right? I'm going to go dig me a hole in the backyard. I'm going to bury my Connex box in it. I'm going to collect ammunition and guns. And I'm going to go live in my Connex box and believe what I want to believe. That's right. I'm going to go buy a 50 caliber rifle. Right? And I'm, I'm, a, I'm about to share me some Jesus at 2,000 feet per second. I'm going to go win me some hearts and some minds by putting two in the chest and one in the head. I'm going to be angry. You're not going to press me. I'm going to roll hard. You can respond that way. You can respond the way that the zealots did, right? 
During the time of Jesus, the zealots went around killing Roman officials. They were terrorists. That's the path of Al-Qaeda. Right? That's the path of the Taliban. That's the path of ISIS. That is not the path of Christianity. Christianity does not call us to go and assassinate those who are unrighteous. It does not call on us to go and jam our faith down other people's throats at the end of a rifle. It doesn't call on us to strike back at those who persecute us. At no point in here, as Christians are being lit on fire and fed to the dogs, does Peter say, rise up and rise again until lambs become lions. Never says that. That's Robin Hood in a Russell Crowe movie. Sounds cool. (laughs) The path that is open for Christians is the third path. To endure in holiness. To live our lives so before the Gentiles that they see our actions and give glory to God. That's what we're called to do. We're called to endure the persecution in holiness. And to do this impossible thing, right? To be struck on the cheek and to turn the other cheek, to look at a person who is trying to take your livelihood from you because they hate you and to love them and to pray for them and to forgive them. You have to be a different person. You have to be born again. You have to be changed. You can't live like that on your own. It's not human to live like that. We're not wired that way. We're wired to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and blood for blood. And you put one of mine in the hospital, I put one of yours in the morgue. You pull a knife, I pull a gun. That's the way we're wired. That's the Chicago way, but that's not the Christian way. And if you want to live the Christian way, if you want to live a holy life in the face of persecution, you've got to do something different. If you're going to endure and triumph, you must embrace your identity as the people of God. You must embrace an alien morality, something that is outside of you, that has to come into you and change you. We must be conformed to the mind of Christ through the renewing of our mind. If you want to do that, if you want to be different, you have to take steps to do it. It doesn't come from doing the same thing that you have done over and over and over again. You don't drive to work every day listening to 93Q Country and have your mind changed. I don't care how wise the DJ is. You have to spend your life building your mind around the ancient truths of Scripture. You must be conformed through ancient truth. And so I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you over the next eight weeks. I want you to try to do something different. You cut, you're here on Sunday morning, and that's fantastic, and I love the fact that you're here on Sunday morning. I want you to go home, and I want you to read the scripture that we're reading. I want you to read through 1 Peter, and then I want you to read through it again. Then I want you to read through it again. And then I want you to read through it again. I want you to read through it until you know it. I want it to penetrate your bones. I want you to wrestle with it the way that Jacob wrestled with God by the side of the river. I want you to not let it go until you pull blessing from it. I want you to read it and interact with it. And then I want you to come on Wednesday night and I want you to study it 
with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to surround yourself with people who are going to hold you accountable, to whom you can talk about this. That's what I want you to do. Because, brothers and sisters, we're in a battle against an ancient evil, right? Every morning, every morning you wake up, you're about to go into a knife fight. Every day. You are in a knife fight with an ancient evil, and you are not going to face down. You are not going to defeat ancient evil with the flavor of the month. You are not going to defeat ancient evil with pop psychology. You are not going to defeat ancient evil with watered-down, weak religion. You are going to defeat ancient evil with timeless truth. So I want you to join with me as we read 1 Peter, which is an ancient letter filled with timeless truth. And I want you to take eight weeks and build your life around that. Now pray with me. Dear sweet Jesus, God, we come to you today as men and women in peril. God, we are in a battle with an ancient evil. We are at war with a culture that wants nothing more than to kill, steal, and destroy. We are facing the devil who stalks through the world like a roaring lion. And we have no weapons to fight him. And so, God, I ask that you would come into this place this morning and that you would give these people ancient wisdom to fight ancient evil, timeless truth to overcome the world. God, I ask that you would move in the hearts of the people here. If there are people here that do not know you, I ask that they would know you, that you would draw them into a relationship with you as you remade me and as you remade other Christians in this room. God, I ask that you would remake them, that you would call them into a relationship with you, that you would show them the sin in their life, that you would show them that they are without any hope beside you. God, I ask that you would do miracles here through the preaching and the hearing and the study of your word. And God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.